Judges and the story of Abimelech. I uh, cannot recall uh, a message on Abimelech until I heard one in the nine o'clock uh, hour. This is a character that uh, no one ever seems to want to preach on. As a matter of fact, when I looked at the commentaries, I found very few who had much to say about uh, Abimelech. He's largely unknown. Um, One principle struck me, something I read a week week or so ago. If you think that there's good in everybody, then you haven't met everybody yet. (laughs) And... uh, I thought that was appropriate for, uh, for Abimelech. I suppose all of us from time to time are troubled about the enormous amount of injustice in our world. Uh, we certainly are concerned about what's happening in the Middle East, and we're wondering how much longer Saddam Hussein can continue on his insane rampage. We wonder about what's happening in South Africa and Liberia and other places around the world. And I think probably the most pertinent form of injustice, at least least the one that annoys most of us the most, is uh, right here at home. Uh, The injustice that some of you experience in your homes, in the marketplace, the people who hassle you and jerk you around, as we say, uh, we keep wondering how much longer people can do that to us. We seem to live in a very unfair world. Uh, it doesn't seem that God cares. He doesn't seem interested in our plight. Uh, how can we justify God? How can we vindicate God in the face of the injustice that we see around us in the world? Well, this is a passage that deals with that particular issue. It is about justice and injustice. Uh, let me uh, begin reading with chapter 9, verse 1. Abimelech, son of Jerubbaal. You recall that was Gideon's nickname, the name that his father gave him, Baal Fighter. Abimelech, son of Jerubbaal, went to his mother's brother in Shechem and said to them and to all his mother's clan, Ask all the citizens of Shechem, which is better for you, to have all seventy of Jerubbaal's sons rule over you or just one man. Oh yes, and remember that I am your flesh and blood. Now, According to chapter 8, this fellow Abimelech was the son of Gideon by a girlfriend that he had in Shechem. We talked last week about uh, Gideon's moral decline in the latter years of his life. Though he refused the opportunity to serve, he wanted the perquisites of service. He lived a very regal lifestyle. Uh, They endowed him with a large amount of money. He had a number of wives He had 70 sons as well as daughters who are not enumerated for us. And uh, he had concubines. Well, one of these uh, concubines, girlfriends, lived in the city of Shechem. She was a Canaanite. Wasn't an Israelite at all. Now, uh, Shechem was an Israelite town. It had been conquered during the uh, conquest by Joshua. It was a town that was rich in associations with uh, Israel's past. It was the place to which Abraham came when he first entered the land of uh, Canaan, when he left Haran. And it was there that God revealed himself uh, and reaffirmed the promise to Abraham that that this land was his. 
and that he would be the father of a great nation, and through him salvation would come to the world. Uh, this was also the place where Jacob lived for a number of years until his two sons, Levi and Simeon, uh, betrayed him. Uh, they so disrupted the society that Jacob had to leave. This was also the place to which Joshua and, and Israel came after the initial stages of the conquest, after they crossed the Jordan. And it was here that the covenant was ratified, uh, the guarantee that God would give them the land. So Israel had a lot of rich memories about Shechem. But Shechem was essentially a Canaanite town. Uh, the rulers, the lords, uh, the Baals of Shechem, as they're called here in the text, were all Canaanites. They were descendants, direct lineal descendants of Hamor who was the founder of the city of Shechem and the first prince and uh, died in the wool uh, Canaanite. And uh, this uh, young woman, her name is not given, but this young woman by whom Gideon had this uh, son was a worshiper of Baal Barit. There was evidently a large uh, sanctuary there dedicated to Baal, but they had combined the worship of the Lord God of Israel and the Baal of the Canaanites. That's why this place was called Baal Barit. Barit in Hebrew just means covenant. It has to do with the covenant-keeping God of Israel. And the Baali and the Baals were the uh, gods that the Canaanites worshipped. So it's kind of a syncretistic uh, worship, a sort of an amalgam of a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And uh, the uh, Israelites that lived in the city of Shechem had bought into this idolatrous uh, system. And it was this in this environment that Abimelech was uh, was raised. Uh, it might come to your mind that the name Abimelech occurs in other, in other places in the Bible. It does. The name is found about four or five places. Or they all seem to be different people. Two of them are Philistine kings. Uh, one was a priest that lived during the time of David. This is a, a different Abimelech, the Canaanite Abimelech, uh, who was Gideon's, uh, Gideon's son. And we're told that he had political ambitions he said to the citizens, well, first to his brothers and then to the citizens or the lords, the rulers of Shechem, uh, isn't it better that I rule over you than Gideon's 70 sons? After all, he said, I'm your flesh and blood. Uh, the young man had political ambitions, but th they were not noble ambitions. He was insanely jealous of his brothers. Uh, he was very greedy, very uh, self-centered person. And uh, there was nothing noble about this aspiration. So when his brothers repeated his request to the city council of Shechem, they were inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He's our brother. They gave him 70 silver shekels from the temple of Baal Barit. They took that money out of the treasury of the sanctuary and gave it to Abimelech. And he hired a bunch of freebooters, reckless adventurers, they're called here. Uh, the Hebrew text calls them empty, worthless people. They're a bunch of thugs. And he hired them with the 70 shekels. They went down to Ophrah, which was the city where Gideon and his sons lived. Gideon now had died, but his sons were still living in Ophrah. And they slaughtered all of Gideon's sons, as the text puts it, on one stone, a kind of a ritual sacrifice. These young men seemed to have offered no resistance. They were probably uh, uh, dissolute. Uh, weak princes. They did not even try to defend themselves, apparently. And this terrible atrocity took place. They killed 70 of Gideon's sons, all of his family uh, who might be expected to rule, except one young man, Jotham, who escaped. Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubal, escaped by hiding. Then having carried out this terrible deed, 
the citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo gathered beside the great tree at the pillar in Shechem to crown Abimelech king. This pillar is probably the very place where Abraham had pitched his tent and where God had revealed himself, and it was almost certainly the place where uh, Joshua and Israel had ratified their covenant with, uh, with God. The, this appears to be an attempt to try to gain acceptance from the entire nation for Abimelech's uh, kingship. We commonly say that Saul was the first king of Israel. Actually, Abimelech was the first king of Israel, though his kingdom was somewhat limited. There was an attempt at this time to try to extend his rule over all of, of Israel. Now, uh, the young man who escaped the slaughter in Ophrah was on the slopes of Mount Gerizim when this uh, coronation ceremony took place. Gerizim is a little low hill just to the south of the city of Shechem, about six or 700 feet above the surrounding plain. It has a series of little benches. And Jotham, evidently, he was the young man who was in hiding. He stationed himself on one of those uh, promontories and watched the ceremony. And when it was over, then he began to call out in a very loud voice. And he told a parable. This is the first of the parables uh, in the Bible, at least the first that uh, I know anything about. And the parable had to do with the kingdom of the trees. Now, I'm not going to read the parable. It would take too long to do so, but this is, the, this is the gist of it. He said the trees wanted to appoint a king over them. So they went first to the olive tree and asked if he would uh, be their king. The olive tree declined. He said, should I give up my oil, by which both gods and men are honored, to go waving over the trees? In other words, should I, I'm doing something that's too important to be king. Uh, I am uh, doing something worthwhile. I don't have time to trivialize myself in this way. I won't be your king. So they went to the next tree, the fig tree. The fig tree also declined. And then they went to the grapevine, and the grapevine declined. And finally, having gone through all the trees, the trees went to the lowliest of, of the bushes, the thorn bush, and said, come and be our king. Now, thorn bushes were uh, not only useless and offered no shade and had no fruit, but they were also a positive menace because uh, back at this time, uh, fires would start, brush fires would begin in thorn bushes, and it would sweep through the countryside, blackening, devastating everything in its path. So they, absolutely, they were considered absolutely worthless. Among other things, this... Uh, this parable probably teaches that people get the leaders they deserve. Uh, they, they got Abimelech, who was the worst possible choice that they could have made. Now, uh, Jotham explains his parable, though he didn't really need to. He says, if you've acted honorably and in good faith, uh, then things will go well. And clearly they had not acted honorably in good faith. They had slaughtered the sons of Gideon. Recall from last week they had asked Gideon to reign over them in his sons. They wanted to establish a dynasty of kings. And uh, these sons would have been in line for the kingship, but they had all they'd been massacred. They'd been killed off. Only Jotham was left. And the king that they chose was worthless. And in verse 20 he says, If you have not acted honorably and in good faith, let fire come out from Abimelech and consume you citizens of Shechem. Because they had aided Abimelech in this massacre of the sons of Gideon. Now, Jotham wasn't a prophet, 
But he did predict at this point that Abimelech's reign would be mutually destructive, that the Shechemites would destroy, or his kingdom would destroy Abimelech, and Abimelech would destroy his kingdom. Now let's see if Jotham was uh, indeed right. Um, Verse 22. After Abimelech had governed Israel three years, God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the citizens of Shechem, who acted treacherously against Abimelech. God did this in order that the crime against Jerubal's 70 sons, the shedding of their blood, might be avenged on their brother Abimelech and on the citizens of Shechem who had helped him murder his brothers. In opposition to him, these citizens of Shechem set men on the hilltops to ambush and rob everyone who passed by, and this was reported to Abimelech. This is the prophet's report to us, the prophet who wrote the book. It's his report to us on what was going on behind the scenes. Now, if we'd just been observing history, what we would have seen is a schism that began to develop between uh, Abimelech and certain portions of his kingdom, notably the Shechemites. They began to, they, they, they were troubled by Abimelech's rule. Uh, they began to take steps to rebel. They, uh, they planted uh, bandits, hired bandits, mercenaries to guard the passes into Abimelech's kingdom and uh, to raid the uh, caravans that were bringing in sources of Abimelech's revenue and they began to disturb his kingdom. That's just the historical outlook. But the prophet tells us what was really going on behind the scene. It was God who was intervening in history to bring all of this about. He caused this, what the writer calls an evil spirit, that is a dissonant spirit uh, between the two uh, the two elements, Abimelech and his in his kingdom. And uh, then God, still at work in human affairs, sends this uh, young gunslinger, Gail, the son of Ebed, who moved to Shechem. Interesting uh, fellow. Uh, during one of their festivals, they go into the local saloon and they begin to eat and drink. And like all tough young gunfighters that are trying to make a name for themselves, Gael has a few too many and he begins to shoot off his mouth. It reminds me of a whole bunch of Western movies that I've uh, seen. And he says in verse 28, Who's Abimelech? Who is this This would-be king? Who is Shechem? That we should be subject to him. Isn't he Jerubal's son? And isn't Zebel his deputy? Uh, send the men of Hamor. Uh, serve the men of Hamor, Shechem's father. Uh, pardon me. Serve the men of Hamor, Shechem's father. In other words, go back to your Canaanite roots. Why should we serve Abimelech? If only this people were under my command, then I would get rid of him. I would say to Abimelech, call out your army. Uh, we have to chuckle. You know, we've, we've seen this sort of thing in, uh, in uh, Western movies and television programs for years. The young tough comes to town and he begins to say what he would do if he ever had a chance to face uh, uh, the, uh, the villain or the hero, as the case may be. And he got his chance. Because Zebel, who was a kind of fifth column that Abimelech had planted in the city, tipped Abimelech off to Guile's boast. And Abimelech then surrounded the city with his army. That story is told in, in verses 30 and following. And uh, the next morning when Guile got up, he continued to brag about his accomplishments And uh, uh, he looked out over the terrain, and he he thought he saw some movement out there. And he said to Zebel, who remember is Abimelech's uh, lieutenant, who was there undercover. And uh, 
Zebul said, no, no, there's nobody out there. It's just shadows on the side of the mountain. And then finally the army began to attack. And Zebul said to Gael, all right, now you've shot off your mouth. Let's, let's, let's put your money where your mouth is. Let's see what you can do. And so Gael gathered his group of thugs, and they went out uh, to meet Abimelech. And they were uh, roundly uh, thrashed and driven back into the city, thinking to gain sanctuary there. And by this time, the Shechemites were fed up with this, uh, this uh, young man, and they threw him out of the city, and they threw his uh, hoodlums out of the city, thinking perhaps to appease Abimelech. But it was too late. Abimelech uh, destroyed the city. He besieged it, tore down the walls, slaughtered the population of the city, and uh, sowed the city with uh, salt that, in order to make it uh, sterile. In verse 46, we're told that uh, when the city fell, the citizens in the Tower of Shechem, which was the stronghold of the city of Shechem, um, normally in these ancient cities there would be a wall around the main part of the city and then another tower fortress into which people would flee, a kind of acropolis to which they would flee in times of war, which is what they did on this occasion. And uh, when Abimelech heard that they had assembled there, he sent his men up into the mountains and they cut green branches, piled them around the base of the tower, set fire to the branches and asphyxiated the people that were in the tower. And as the author tells us, some a thousand, uh, we assume men, women and children died in that terrible tragedy. Then Abimelech went to Thebes, and you can see what's happening. He's beginning to destroy his own kingdom. Uh, really, there were only three or four cities that, were on, that had come to his side, Aruma, Shechem, and Thebes, and he began systematically to destroy uh, his people. There was a kind of madness that uh, set in <clears throat> that we often see uh, in the actions of tyrants. Verse 50, next Abimelech went to Thebes, besieged it, captured it, Inside the city, however, was a strong tower to which all the men and women, all the people of the city fled. So it seems they were revisiting the history of Shechem again. They locked themselves in and climbed up on the tower roof. Abimelech went to the tower and stormed it, but as he approached the entrance to the tower to set it on fire, a woman dropped an upper millstone on his head and cracked his skull. Uh, lucky shot, we say. No, not at all, not at all. These millstones are about the size of a Frisbee, uh, about 12, 13 inches in diameter and about three inches wide. And I don't know what velocity a rock that size would, uh, would attain if you dropped it off the top of the tower, but it was sufficient to take, uh, take Abimelech out of the action. He was mortally wounded, and he realized that he was about to die, so he said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and kill me so they won't say a woman kill me. And uh, his servant ran him through, and he died. When the Israelites saw that Abimelech was dead, they went home. They left off the siege, and they went back to their homes, and that was the end of this insurrection, and it was the end of the city of Shechem, and it was the end of Abimelech. And I think of that old poem of Friedrich Van Logues, Though the mills of God grind slowly, Yet they grind exceeding small, though with patience he stands waiting. With exactness grinds he all. Uh, now we begin to ask ourselves, what the point, what's the point of this terrible story? What's it doing in the Bible? Well, a couple of, couple of morals come to mind. 
This is simply another indication that there was no man in Israel that could save the nation from decline. Every man so far had been disappointing. Ehud, Othniel, Gideon, certainly, Barak. There was no one to deliver. And this, of course, is the point of the book of Judges. There's no king to set Israel free. And ultimately, the point of the whole Bible, no human king will ever set us free. It's only when that once and coming king comes that uh, things will be set will be set right. So that certainly is, at least in the mind of the author, just, just another in this continuing story that no man can get the job done. Men will always disappoint you. Try Jesus. He's the only one that can set things right. But there's another lesson here that struck me forcibly this, this last week. There are a couple of verses in this history that just jumped off the page at me. The first is uh, the one I read to you, uh, verse 23. God sent an evil spirit against Abimelech. God did this in order that the crime against Jerubal's 70 sons might be avenged. And then verse 56, which is the author's bottom line. Thus, thus, God repaid the wickedness that Abimelech had done to his father by murdering his 70 brothers. We look at uh, the life of someone like Abimelech or someone like Nikolai Kucheska or Idi Amin or Adolf Hitler or Benito Mussolini or any of the monsters of history and we wonder why did they get away with what they did? Why didn't God judge them immediately? Well, he obviously didn't judge them immediately. They did an enormous amount of damage. They left behind a lot of heartache and destruction, damage to human life as well as property. And we say, why? Why did God put up with that? Well, he didn't because they all die. You see that? They all die. That's the judgment. Things may not be set right in this life, but as Hebrews puts it, it is appointed unto man once to die. And after that, the judgment. The wheels of God's justice do grind slowly, but they grind exceedingly fine because everybody dies. Nobody gets out of this life alive. And uh, we look at these people who seem to trip through life and have it their way, and we forget. This is the forgotten factor. They die. I think of that picture of Nikolai Kocheska, you know, the Romanian uh, president who who uh, so cruelly oppressed those people and I think of that picture the, the, the camera just kept panning back to that picture of Cochesta lying in a, in a pool of blood he died Idi Amin today I understand is is running from one city to the next in, in Africa looking for a place to stay no one wants him and, and someday he will die and then he, he'll face God Adolf Hitler faced God all the monsters of history have faced God and the people who are oppressing you someday will face God and you will face God and I will face God. It's appointed unto man once to die and after this, the judgment. Psalm, makes, Psalm 90 makes that very clear that, that, that death is not a natural occurrence. Death is the judgment of God upon a sinful humanity. We like to talk about the, accident, the accidental causes of 
of death as though it's something unusual, the mishap, the, the automobile accident, we say, uh, advanced uh, age, whatever it may be that kills us. But it's very clear from this passage. It's very clear from, from all of, of, of the revelation that we have that God appoints the time of our death and he, he lets us go on and on and on and then we die. So all in all, we do live in a very fair world. Retribution may not take place in this world, but it will take place. Let me give you the theological basis of this passage. Turn to Psalm 73. I don't have time to expand on this passage. I just want to read a few verses from it. It's a psalm of Asaph, one of David's temple singers, whose faith was fizzling. He was in deep trouble. This was something, uh, he needed something more than a couple of aspirin and a good night's sleep. He was deeply troubled. He first states what he knows. God is good to those who are pure in heart. It's good theology. God is good to those that are, that are centered on him, pure in the sense of unmixed. Uh, blessed are the pure in heart. The uh, Beatitude says, for they shall see God, those that have their eyes focused on God, who want God with all their heart. God's good, he says to folks like that. Good theology, but uh, the, the psalmist says, man, when I look around at life, it isn't that way. It isn't that way. Because the godly seem to get it coming and going, and the ungodly get off scot-free. Nothing ever happens to them. And what it did, it began to compromise his faith. He, he says, I was like a mountain climber, just hanging on by my fingernails, just barely able to keep a grip on God. I was about ready to flick the whole thing in. And, and perhaps you're, you're feeling the same way this morning. And he struggles with this thing. He, in verse 4, he, he says, the, the, the arrogant, that is those that uh, never give God the time of day, who never thank God for anything. Uh, the proud, the arrogant people. I was just reading one of Stephen Kuntz's uh, books, The Mentor, this last week. I, I like uh, books about flying and uh, that sort of thing. And he has a character in there, a, a bombardier a navigator, whose name is Toad Tarkington. And uh, he makes a, a, an unusually successful bombing run. And his pilot uh, says something to him, and he says in response, yeah, I'm the best in the world, and and his pilot says, you're all so humble. And uh, Tarkington says, humble is for those who can't. I can. And uh, there are a lot of people like that in the world. You know, they can. They can. And, uh, and they never think that it's God who enables them to do it. There's nothing wrong with saying, I can, as long as you understand that, that all of your ability comes from God. As David puts it, by, by my God, I've leaped over, leapt over a wall. By my God, I can run through a troop, you know. But these are the people who never think about God. It all comes from themselves. And they, they, their bodies, he says, are healthy and strong. They're free from the burdens common to men. They're not plagued by human ills. Pride is their necklace. They vaunt their pride. They clothe themselves with violence. And I think of some of the people that we mentioned a moment ago, these cruel tyrants in history who are known for their violence. Murderous people, their callous heart, from their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds knows no limits. They scoff and speak with malice in their arrogance. They threaten oppression. 
Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree. They increase in what? They get away with murder. Just like Abimelech did. But uh, the psalmist went into the sanctuary of God. He says in uh, verse 15, if I had spoken this way, I would have betrayed this generation of your children. He didn't talk his trouble over with anyone. He didn't want to betray anyone or, or uh, void their faith. And he just tried to work it out himself. I tried to understand all this, and it was oppressive to me. Some of you are struggling with this whole issue of why God lets someone like Saddam Hussein uh, uh, overrun Kuwait and, and mete out such cruelty to people. And we're saying, why? Why does God do this? And then he says, I entered the sanctuary of God and I understood their final destiny. And then he spells out what that destiny is. Surely you place them on slippery ground. They're on a slippery slope toward the grave. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. That's a poetic word for the afterlife, for the abode of the dead. As a dream when one awakes, so when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. They're living in a dream world, he says. They, they think they're going to get away, but they aren't. And he, he says, the whole thing was confusing to me. I couldn't understand how they could get away with, with their activities. And God was seen to be smiling on them. And some of you are saying, how could my spouse get away with what he's been getting away with? How could, how could uh, the, whoever the person is that's oppressing you, how can they get away? They aren't. They aren't. And what opens their eyes is to reveal their final destiny. That like Abimelech, they will die. And they will face God. And that's when retribution uh, will occur. And we say, well, why doesn't God take them out right now? Well, uh, Peter answers that question for us. He's not willing that any should perish. But that all should come to repentance. God longs to see Saddam Hussein brought into the kingdom. He longs to see the person that's oppressing you brought into relationship with him. That's why Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who despitefully use you. Because in doing that, you're like your father who's in heaven. He loves them, cares about them. These cruel tyrants of history, God loves them as much as he loves you. He died for them as much as he died for you, you see. He cares. And that's why he waits. And he waits. And he waits. But he knows the human heart. And he knows when that, that, when that heart is irreversibly hardened. Then he just takes them away. And then they face the judgment. But you say, well, he's going to take me away too. I'm going to die one of these days. That, that, that doesn't seem right either. Well, the psalmist goes on to uh, handle that uh, puzzlement, as Pooh would say. Verse 23, I'm always with you. I'm always with you. You understand what he's saying? You have God. And they don't. That's the difference. That's the only difference. You have God. 
You held me, uses a past tense um, verb that implies uh, completed action in the past. You have held me by my right hand. You are right now guiding me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Now, there are some who will tell you the Old Testament knows nothing of a resurrection. Don't believe it, it does. This word, take me, is used in a number of places in the Psalms, other places in the Old Testament, for the resurrection. It's a word that's used for Enoch in Genesis 5. Enoch is walking along with God, and someone has said they got too far away from home to go back, and God said, well, just come on home with me. So he took Enoch, took him. And uh, what the psalmist is saying here is, The only difference between you and the person out there who faces the wrath of God at judgment is that God loves you and you know him and you have him. And he brought you along. He's been holding your hand and he's counseling you in the present. See, Which which is the, the way we can face the demands upon us because of the oppression. Uh, Someone came up after the morning service and said, yes, but what about those that are being pressed? What about the people in Kuwait? Well, Yes, they're, they're suffering terribly, and that, you know, that God doesn't want people to suffer in that way. But that suffering very often is what brings people to the end of themselves and brings them into a relationship with God. I talked to another person this morning who, who told me about her family life and some of the disappointments of her own husband and the way uh, her marriage has gone. And it's been very, very hard for her, for, for her and she can understand why God permitted her husband to, to go on doing these things to her. And I said, yes, but what about you? What's happened to you? And she said, well, I know God in a way I never knew him before. So God uses even the cruelty of these tyrants to draw people to himself. That's why we need to be praying for the people in Kuwait that these terrible things will get their attention and draw them to the Savior, that this might become an opportunity for those that are working in this area. Uh, to extend the kingdom of, of Christ in that, in that country. But uh, our assurance is that we are, we are with God always. You have held me by the right hand. You are guiding me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And being with you, I desire nothing. I desire nothing on earth. Someone has said that someone who has God in everything has no more than someone who has God and God alone. Because, you see, it's God that gives meaning to life. And the psalmist realizes that. He, he, can, he can withstand the worst sort of tyranny because he has God. And if he didn't have anything else, then that makes life worth living. My flesh and heart may fail, he says, but God is the strength of my life. In my portion, forever. Oh yeah, we're all going to face death. Death is still the judgment of God on a sinful humanity. That's something that science doesn't tell us. Death is not natural. Death is unnatural. Death is the judgment of God. But death for us simply means that we just get more of God. That's all. We have him forever. We're not limited to to our relationship to him in this life. We'll always have him. Those who are far from you will perish. That's his word to the oppressors. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you, but as for me, he says, it's just good to be near God. Literally what he says in Hebrew is the nearness of God is my good. He's gone full circle. 
He started out saying, God is good to those that are pure in heart. And then he struggles his way through this, uh, this, this mystery, this conundrum, this, this uh, paradox that he can't, he can't deal with until he comes to the solution and he sees the final destiny of all of us is to stand face to face with God. And then the judgment. And those that have made no room in their life with God will experience the wrath of God and will experience the goodness of God forever. So he says, the goodness of God, the good thing in life is just being near God. Let me tell you a story. I told this story years ago, and I'd forgotten all about it until last Wednesday, and it came to mind as I was, we were talking about another issue in the men's class on Wednesday morning. You men that were there will have to forgive me, but it just fits so well. I have to tell it again. Two elderly missionaries traveling from Africa back to the United States. They've been on the field for 50 years, serving God faithfully there. They were retiring. They take a much-needed break. Happened to be on the boat with the Beatles. Just after, who was it, Ringo Starr said that they were more significant than Jesus Christ or some off-the-wall comment like that that was in all the newspapers. Got to the um, pier in New York, and there were thousands of teenagers there to greet the Beatles. They were jumping up and down, screaming and waving pennants and trying to tear their clothes off of them as they came down the gangplank. Mission organization forgot to send anybody to meet the uh, couple. They were all by themselves. Really did make the, the elderly gentleman angry. That nobody was there to greet him. And he said to his wife, This is unfair. We have come home and there's nobody here to greet us. It's in right. And she didn't, she had the good sense not to say anything. <laughs> and uh, uh, to compound the confusion, they had to uh, unload their heavy trunks and wrestle them into a taxi. And the, and the old gentleman was just getting angrier and angrier by the minute and more resentful and kept muttering under his breath, here we are, we've come home and nobody cares. Finally get their, uh, their gear to their apartment, and it's just kind of a ratty old apartment that, the, that they could find because the mission board had forgotten to, uh, to find a place for them. And, and uh, the, the, the old man just got madder and madder and madder. And finally she said to him, you know, hon, you need to work this out. Go talk it over with the Lord. Go take a long walk or something. You know, <laughs> get out of the house and work this out. So he began to walk around the block and pray. And he came in about an hour later, and it was obvious that he just looked different, big smile on his face, seemed to be all right. She said, what happened? She said, well, I had a, he said, well, I had a good talk with the Lord. And, and I told him that we've, we've come home, and it's just not right. Nobody cares. And the Lord said, you weren't home yet. See, that's the issue. We're not home yet. One of these days, we're going to be home. Then, and only then, God will set everything right. Let's pray. My Lord, how we look forward to that, that home going. In the time when you will once for all redress all the ills of this world. You will judge sin completely and eradicate it from the face of the earth. And we will have a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And more importantly, we will dwell forever with you. We look forward to that, that time, not because we want to see people judged, 
but simply because we want to see your glory manifest. In the meantime, Lord, help us to love our enemies and pray for those that despitefully use us and show to them the same patience and tolerance that you're showing to them. Help us by our life and example to draw them closer to the one that can satisfy their every longing. Use us, Lord, in that way wherever we can. And enable us to be content with your timetable, not upset and resentful because things don't seem to be working out as we want them to work out, but aware that that you as a sovereign, sovereign, loving Lord, all-knowing Lord, that you have have the, the schedule, the timetable that needs to be met. Help us to rest in that. Thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.